You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Brian J. Showers is the author of Old Albert and Afterward. He's the publisher of Swan Rivers Press. Brian, would you mind reading to me from uh, Old Albert? Sure. This is the the prologue, um, obviously at the very beginning of the book, so no context necessary. Adjacent to Lizenfield, and just across the road from the southern end of Barry's Terrace, you will see a large sports ground surrounded by a low stone wall topped with a black iron fence. During the daytime, this private sports ground is filled with muddy and grass-stained children playing rugby, each with the determination of a professional. The children who play rugby here, indeed as well as the sports ground in which they play, belong to St. Mary's College, one of five Dublin schools run by the Holy Ghost Fathers. Over the lane, leading to the college from Rathmines Road, is a sign, white letters on a Prussian blue field, that displays the institution's 120-year-old motto, Fidelitas in Arduous, faithfulness in difficulty. Just as traditional, though perhaps less official than the school motto, is a schoolyard rhyme that seems to have had its origin at St. Mary's. It can be recited by current pupils with wide eyes and wild grins, and recalled by the school's oldest living graduates with nostalgia and a hint of curiosity. It goes like this. If dumb old Albert calls you, still your tongue, be still your tongue. If deaf old Albert hears you, Still your tongue, be still your tongue. If blind old Albert sees you, still your tongue, be still your tongue. If deaf old Albert finds you, if dear old Albert finds you, still your tongue, be still your tongue. Brian, I'd like to ask you just a little bit about your background from both in here in Dublin and in America, and just where you came from in terms of your reading history. Since this book concerns children hearing their first rhymes, talk about what were the first things you remembered reading. The the earliest things I remember reading would be um, probably Greek myths. Uh, I remember in the third grade I read a lot of Greek myths. I had a, a book of, of uh, the Hercules and Theseus and Perseus, um, one of these children's book sort of things. And I think around the same time as when I started reading, or rather had read to me, John Belair's is The House with the Clock on Its Walls. And that book, I think more than any other, is one that, that really uh, sparked my curiosity about, about genre writing. Um, and if you know the book, uh, especially the first edition, it has that beautiful purple cover with the Edward Gorey illustrations on it, uh, which captured my imagination pretty quickly. And then, of course, the other one is, is another childhood standard, I think, is Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which, which again, has illustrations that, that once you see them, you don't forget them. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how those kind of uh, children's books uh, mark your memory and prove to be something, you know, the fount of a lot of imagination, I think. It's it seems to be something that, that, at least for me, it's it's something that happened at a very early age. I was always interested in ghosts and monsters and science fiction and robots and dinosaurs. 
it had to have some sort of supernatural or fantastical element in it to hold my attention. So, I mean, even the Greek myths were on some level, you know, they had their monsters and they had their superheroes in them. So that interest in the fantastical is something that developed very early. Yeah, no, I love the monsters in the Greek myths, and I think yeah. many of them are, you know, they're hard to surpass. Even the more heads, see, the better. You know, the more heads, the better. <laughs> now, uh, ratchet up to when you first decided to start writing. What kind of, uh, where were you in your life, and both in your reading life and in your, you know, professional, personal life that made you said, I, I want to, you know, try to write something? Um, well, again, it, the, the, it happened the same year. I think I was in the third grade. <laughs> okay. um, and I still have it, in fact. It's, it's a very poorly written collection of short stories, um, about a page and a half long each. Um, and they, it concerns graveyards and dinosaurs and, and monstrous trees. Uh, and I also illustrated it. And then I stapled the whole thing together with about 20 staples up and down the side. Um, so I still have that. Uh, so yeah, that must have been, when I was seven or eight years old, that must have been a, a flashpoint year. Um, the next thing I remember writing would probably have been around high school, and again, this would have been uh, pretty poorly written horror type stuff, and anyone who cares to find the high school journal, um, I'm sure could find a bit of writing by myself. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a bit of pat, bad poetry in there too. Um, and then again, I think once I had moved to Dublin, um, I don't know what inspired it, but I, it's the sort of thing where I ended up sitting down and, and writing something, and lo and behold, the short story was finished. Well, uh, what inspired the move to Dublin? Um, I wish I had a good answer for that. Uh, <laughs> um, I just, you know, I finished, I finished with, with college. Uh, and about six months later, I think I worked through the summer and I moved here. Um, I had I'd visited here once before uh, on my, my, my grand tour of, of Europe and it was between Dublin and Edinburgh and I liked both cities. They were, they were big enough cities but not too big, um, possibly reminding me a little bit of Madison which is, you know, it's a city but it's, it's a small city so you can get comfortable in it. Um, it was between the two, um, Dublin and Edinburgh, and I just I just chose Dublin, I guess. And nothing, nothing. Uh, no, there was no real reason for it, I suppose, aside from, aside from that. Yeah. Now, in Old Albert, I think you do just a superb job at a, just a number of things. For one thing, just describing the community of Rathmines. It's just beautifully described. You could feel like I've lived there for 50 years <laughs> by the time I've finished reading like five pages of the prose. It's really immersive. I'd like you to talk about crafting this book and it comes as a, uh, we are told at least, and it's a very complicated book. Right. Um, this is, book is a meta, meta book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, it comes at, on the heels of your first collection of short stories of Bleeding Horse. Yeah. Now that's set at a real, that's a real pub. We could probably walk there from here yep, in about 10 yep, minutes. Yep. So talk about writing about where you live and turning it into a place that's pretty creepy and filled with stuff that you don't uh, want to encounter. I think it's, I think it's, I mean, for me, I, I, I like to imagine things and I like to, I like to live in, I like to want to live an interesting life. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, so I suppose when, 
I'm walking down the street, you know, in my own neighborhood. It's the things that I'm familiar with every day. And I suppose being foreign, too, I, I, I notice things that other people don't. You know, if, you, if you've grown up somewhere, you tend not to notice your surroundings as much as someone who's just moved there. So for me, it was about, it was about seeing things and wondering about them. And if I didn't know something about something, I could, or if it didn't have any sort of um, actual interest, I could just make something up about it. I could, I could make up a story, and it would be entertaining enough um, just for myself. Um, but honestly, things, a lot of things, especially in a place like Dublin, you don't need to make up stories. Uh, there's, there's plenty of um, history that's already attached to the neighborhoods. So the, the bleeding horse would have been sort of, uh, and Old Albert would have been a cross between um, discovering the history of the neighborhood in which I lived and, and just sort of making things up, wanting to live in an interesting place that already happens to be interesting, I suppose. But, um, you know, adding my own personal, um, my own personal claim to the area, um, if only for myself, but, but, but I suppose since I've written a book, it's, it's, it's um, been something else that other people can experience now too. Well, I think you do a, a great job of creating, um, mixing up history and fiction mm -hmm. and kind of interleaving them. And one of the things I think that's nice about a city like Dublin and in fact Europe in general, as opposed to America, is there's so much stuff that's right there, that's right out in the open, mm -hmm. that's really, really old. When I, when I was, not, it wasn't long after I moved here, I was reading a biography of, of Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, who is an author who I'm very concerned with now and who I, who I, I had always read, but it wasn't until I moved here that I sort of fixated on him. And I didn't move here for him. And when I moved here, I wasn't thinking, wasn't thinking about him or Bram Stoker or, or, or Lord Dunsany or any of Ireland's contributions. It was sort of, it was sort of these people that I realized were Irish after I had moved here. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was an epiphany. It was something that just dawned on me thinking, oh, well, right, of course. They're Irish. I could probably, if I want to, go and find where they were living. Um, and it, I had a moment when I was, when I was reading this, this biography of Lefanu where there was a photograph of, the, of the, the, the tombstone, the vault. And it said it was in Mount Jerome Cemetery. And I thought, okay, all right, that's, that's actually in Dublin. Well, I'm in Dublin. Uh, so I went out and I got my little pocket map and I opened it up and it turns out that Mount Jerome was 15 minutes away from where I was sitting reading the book. So I was able to just walk out, I grabbed my bag, I grabbed my jacket and I just went out and, and you know, a few minutes later, actually about two hours later, it took me a while to find him, uh, I was standing at his, at his graveside. Uh, so to have that, that, to have something like that, yeah, on your, on your doorstep, um, and there's tons of stuff like that too, I mean, we're, we're sitting maybe five minutes from the Shelbourne Hotel, which is where Bram Stoker met Henry Irving. Uh, and this is a pivotal moment in, in Bram Stoker's life where he leaves Dublin, he moves to London to become the theater manager for the Lyceum, and you know, the rest is history. Um, and that's just down the road there. Uh, now, tell us a little bit about Le Fanu for people who aren't really familiar with how important he is to the supernatural canon. I think he's. I think his importance shouldn't be underestimated. Be mainly because of the influence that he would have had on M.R. James, and someone asked me recently um, which authors, modern authors, or which authors I thought were were influenced by Lefanu, and I, I kind of thought about that, and I said anyone who really describes themselves as Jamesian, 
Uh, any anyone's who's anyone any person's work that 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 is kind of just in this classic ghost story vein, and I think James may have crystallized the ghost story, but he was picking up from Le Fanu a lot of these 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 ways to convey the supernatural moment, um, which I, I don't think he's ever outdone. Uh, you know, that's an interesting phrase, the supernatural moment, yeah. and I think that's a moment that a lot of writers seek. And I, a lot of people seek it. It's um, uh, a way of talking about the that the way that humans tend to naturally seek what mm -hmm. religion, in a yeah. sense. But it's I think in writing though that's the the supernatural moment. It's it's just it's usually a phrase mm -hmm. or a sentence, and never never very long. But it, it really gets under your skin, and you you read those few, those few lines, and and there it is um, at the back of your mind. It it plays there. Uh, and I think it's a great trick. I mean, it's a great skill, not a trick at all. I mean, it's a great skill because the that supernatural moment isn't usually in those just few words, even though when you read those those few words, that's when it happens. But I think it's carefully layered up through the rest of the story so that by the time you get to that crucial moment, um, it's really effective. Uh that's so interesting. Now, if somebody wanted to read Le Fanu, mm -hmm. didn't know anything about him, where, where, where should they start and how far should they go? Yeah, this is my favorite story question. Okay. <laughs> um, I, well, the, the first one I'm fairly certain that I read was Green Tea. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would, I would recommend starting there because it's, it's not a ghost story in the way that, that most people would define a ghost story, but it's, it's really a story of... of um, demonic possession, I suppose, uh, and it's a brutal story. The ending is bleak, and it's 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 an inescapable bleakness. So Lefanu is writing this this thing that 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 like it or not, it's just going to take you to this 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 very um, dark place, this dark ending. Uh, I trying to talk about it without saying too much, of course, for anyone who hasn't read it. But I think a lot of his stories tend to be that way. I mean, there are very few happy endings in his stories. Uh, and that's something that I like, uh, <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, Green Tea would be, uh, would be probably the, the, the classic place to start. Um, and then there's another story called um, The Child That Went With The Fairies, um, which is one of his Irish um, again, it's not really a ghost story, but it's 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 a story of of um, an abducted child, really, um, drawing on the fairy legend of, of the west of Ireland. And having grown up, Lefanu, having grown up in the west of Ireland, he draws quite a bit on the folklore that he knows about the upon the landscape. Um, so I think it's a beautiful story, and I think as Jim Rockhill and I talk about this once in a while, in particular this story. We both really like this story, and he, he thinks that the story is starting to get more attention um, as it should. Well, uh, so you came here to yeah. experience the land of La Fanu, and you started, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that you did. Uh, talk about um, being surrounded by, you know, the spirits, essentially, mm -hmm. of these great writers and the source of their inspiration and then uh, stepping out on your own to write your own set of stories. And, and where did you find publication? How did you approach that matter when you, when you were here? Did you always say, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to be 
get published? Was that your No, point? no, I never had the, and I still, I mean, I'm, I'm a terrible, I don't have very good um, discipline, self-discipline, <laughs> which is why I write very little. Um, I, find it, I find it quite difficult, and I thought writing The Bleeding Horse and Old Albert um, to be hard going, um, maybe because of the way that I was layering in historical with the completely made up, because I didn't want to misstep, or I didn't want to write the wrong thing, um, especially since it's a history that I didn't grow up with. You want to write it the correct way, you don't want to um, not look like you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Um, there were the bits in the in Father Corrigan's diary in the Bleeding Horse, uh, set in a Catholic church. And of course, I didn't grow up Catholic. I don't know anything about this, so I had to really make sure that I was I was not overstepping or not writing the you know just something that was wrong. Um, and by wrong, I just mean you know using the wrong terminology. Sure. The even wrong turn yeah, of phrase, the too. wrong turn of phrase. Um, no, I, I never felt as if I wanted to be a professional writer um, and, and as far as publication goes I mean I just whenever I do something whether it's fiction or nonfiction I'll just send it off to whoever and if they like it fine great um, there's a place for it otherwise fine great <laughs> no one wants to read it I want to explore the the landscape of, of old Albert because uh -huh. that uh, is just such an incredibly um, interesting piece of writing um, it begins with this, um, we have like epigraphs, we have a little mm -hmm. introduction from Jim Rockhill, it seems like it's, but it proves to be actually part of the plot of the book. Yeah. So talk about mixing the facts from your personal life, facts from historical life, mm -hmm. and stuff you completely made up. Well, it's a, it's a trick to weave them all together. Mm -hmm. And again, this is why it takes me so long, it took me so long to write those stories. Um, I know that when I was writing the two books, every right. line seemed as if it, if it had some sort of, like it just had to be perfect, it had to be just right, that I had to say the right things in each sentence. So it was, it was just this minuscule amount of, you know, you're working phrase by phrase by phrase instead of, I'm, I'm jealous of the people that can sit down and write 5,000 words in one go, because I'd be happy if I could come away with 250 words, <laughs> you know, from an afternoon's work. Um, so maybe it's put me off writing. <laughs> now, it, do you do a lot of research beforehand, kind of let it seethe in your head and then let it rain down on the page, or is it kind of simultaneous or both? Well, this, and by the time I wrote The Bleeding Horse, I'd been living in Rathmines for at probably five or six years. And I don't think I could have written the book before that. You know, I would have had mm -hmm. to just um, feel the neighborhood, you know, it's, it's, it's just become part of my life now, and even more so now that I've been there for, for nearly 15 years. And yeah, I, there, was a, there was a lot of research um, that had to be done. And well, I mean, I found that when I was, I was, I essentially had the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, and then I would be reading and double checking to make sure I got certain facts right or, or that, 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 you know, a certain pub existed at the time that I was setting my story. So if I were to reference it, that, you know, it was actually there. Um, I had a lot of reference materials on my desk. And sometimes when you read things and you discover something, and you think, oh, gosh, I don't actually have to make anything up. I can just stick this in there and it's great. And that's that's what that's what happened with with um, with old Albert, in particular, um, the scenes that are set in Hoth and Ireland's Eye. 
the the murder that that was a real incident and I'm not exactly certain why I chose to put that in there now um, but it was something that was just too good not to put into the book mm-hmm. I mean it seems made up one of the things I'd like you to just talk about too is to the way that you create the the um, kind of the metaphysical structure of the book mm-hmm. it, it's Jim Rockhill at the beginning says it's an epilogue. It begins with a prologue, and then it has this long epilogue um, by a, is the epilogue by the editor of the other magazine? Is that real? How much of that is real? I mean, did he does that guy exist? I mean, <laughs> well, it's the, just so it's so great to read that because you're just by that time you're like at about the third level of what the yeah. Heck? It's well the way the book is set up is. The, there's the the note to the reader, mm-hmm. which is which is Jim's introduction, essentially setting up the fact that that the narrator is this fellow that he's been corresponding with, and this this story begins to unfold in you know in, over the course of letters or you know the information that Jim receives, uh, and then each chapter and dividing the whole thing into chapters was a was pretty much a final decision. It was just a single novella, I guess it is. Um, it divided it into, into different chapters, and each chapter seems to move us forward in time in the history of a particular plot of land in, in the neighborhood where I live called St. Mary's College. Or the, the, the original house's name was called Lark Hill, and that's the actual name of the house. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a big house. Um, big house is probably the wrong term, but it, but it was. See, again, this is where my research has to... <laughs> well, did Ellis Grimwood exist? No, he's made up. But he's, he's a yeah. great character. He's, yeah. Um, oh, in fact, that's why I put. That's why I included Hoth is because I thought, right, where would a guy who who loves birds um, retire to? And I thought, there's tons of birds on Hoth, so he'd probably go out to Hoth. <laughs> that's why I put him there. And then he's buried in the graveyard there because I thought, right, he's an old man, he's going to die eventually. So if someone dies in Hoth, where are they buried? Well, they're probably buried there at the ruined churchyard. I don't know if you went up there. Um, but there's just a ruined churchyard that, that, that's up around the, sort of on the hillside, oh. overlooking the village. Oh, we didn't actually get to that part. Oh, okay. yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful uh, walk down there yeah. along the cliff. It's very precipitous. It's yeah. a real cliff walk once yep. you get up there. Um, so, you, but also, this other hat you wear is, I think, really, I mean, I love Old Albert, and I think that these um, books everybody should read these books they're really beautifully written thank you um and but the way they're going to have to read them is by going to buy them from swan river press so you came here um as the entire publishing industry is imploding it's <laughs> crashing and burning nobody wants stop a saying that book. i don't want to think about that because <laughs> that's nobody uh... wants a hardback book anymore you're producing beautiful hardback books yeah. that are worth slaying for what made you decide to take that step um, a couple of things. I mean, I'd, I'd had some bad experiences with publishers, uh, and I basically thought I could I could do better than that. Um, possibly not financially, but but at the very least, I could I could hopefully be um, nicer than the, than, the, than some of the publishers I've worked with. Um, so I just I thought I could I could. Yeah, I, I thought that. I mean, I also wanted to work with other people too. So I mean, I when I when I did my my. The, the original Swan River Press publications were, were chapbooks, and these were stories that I wrote and published to basically give away to people uh, for like Halloween or Christmas gifts. 
and eventually started getting these emails of people wanting me to publish their stories in this format, which because of the format that I chose, I mean, these were all hand sewn um, little booklets uh, and it took so long to do, like I couldn't possibly publish other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it was enough for me to do one story of my own once a year. It was labor intensive just to, I mean, we're not even talking about writing the story, just to, to produce these tiny chapbooks. Oh, did, you, how did you sew them yourself? Yeah, yeah, they're all hand sewn oh, and they're all, you? like all of the pages were, were folded by hand. Um, all of the, the ribbon bookmarks were, were, you know, placed in by hand as well. So it was, it was just, you know, I used Word to, to do the typesetting and I probably did it in a way that, that no one would ever dream of doing it. <laughs> it was so fiddly and so, so difficult. But I mean, people were asking me if I would publish their, their stories or do these things for them. And I couldn't, but I, I realized that I kind of wanted to. I wanted the experience of, of working with people. So I devised a slightly easier way to publish um, booklets uh, mm -hmm. instead of doing these tiny little palm-sized chapbooks. I did A5 uh, format booklets, which um, eliminated a number of steps in, in the production. And I was able to then turn around and, and ask some of my favorite writers if they would write stories for little one-off booklets that I was publishing. Um, and then it just sort of went on to hardbacks from there. Well, the harp covers are just really beautiful, and I think that you're doing, you're kind of creating a Swan River Press genre in <laughs> to a certain yeah. extent. And I think it's a very interesting phenomena that here in the 21st century, where we're surrounded by digital noise mm -hmm. and continuous nonstop realism, you reach into our deepest psyches and bring out the oldest fears, and I think uh, but yet make that all relevant and placeable within a modern landscape. So talk about the importance of the ghost story to us now. Oh, um, well, I think the ghost story has always been alive, particularly, and, and by ghost story, I mean the, the wider uncanny genre. Um, I think it's al always been alive in the small press in particular. Um, and, and going back to, to just publishing in general, I mean, I take a lot of inspiration from, from Tartarus Press and Ashtree Press, and um, who are some of the other ones, Aegis Press, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a few others that, that, again, they produce beautiful books, mm -hmm. and, and this is where, when I want to read a good ghost story, I turn to them. Um, I, I see what Ashtree has to offer. Um, I was reading their journal, All Hollows, when it was, when it was still coming out, or if I wanted to read Arthur Mackin, I would, I would go to Tartarus Press, and I would get one of their books. Mm -hmm. and, these are publishers that they, they also make beautiful books and they, they keep alive not only the old writers but are, are publishing modern writers too. And I think that's, that's essential to, to keep a genre alive and vibrant is to, to continually um, give venue to new writers. Um, and I'd like to do that too. I mean, I've been doing a lot of reprints, but, but um, just in fact today, the, the newest book arrived from the printer called Dreams of Shadow and Smoke. And it's the first anthology that, that Swan River has done. And it's a tribute anthology to Lefanu, who's celebrating his bicentenary this year. So it's all new stories um, by modern authors who are writing stories, um, not pastiches, but, but responses, really, to, to Lefanu's work. And yeah, I mean, as far as the importance of the ghost story, well, any genre that's 
been around for 200 years already. Um, <laughs> I don't think needs to have needs to be proved by anyone. You know, it's it's there. I mean, there's there's obviously a market for it. There's obviously a readership for it, and I think it's because of it's it's been around for so long already. Um, there's there's something that's that's ingrained in, in readers that, that like this sort of thing. Um, like I said, when I was seven or eight years old, I mean, I already knew that this was my thing. This is what I liked. So that's it's something that I think that comes from very deep within a reader it's 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 a genre i mean it's like it's like um, romance or comedy it's <laughs> you know very basic level yeah. sort of sort of um emotional response well i think it it helps people the for me i mean c because we're all haunted not necessarily by the spirits of the dead mm -hmm. but by regret and, sure. and happiness and memories and all yeah. those other things and the kind the ghost story is a way of turning psychology into plot yeah <laughs> and and that's I think the essential um, moment of storytelling is mm -hmm. when that happens when our brains are turned into a story I think this is this is what makes Lefanu's story so good is because he does explore that that anguished mind uh, and and it does take a supernatural uh, sort of turn I mean that's how the the anguished mind manifests itself is with demonic monkeys, <laughs> um, and and it would be the same with Steve Rasnick Thames' work. I mean, I, I published a volume of his work called Here with the Shadows, and that book is is again concerned with with anguish and grief and and a feeling of loss, and it is yes a collection of ghost stories, but not in the way that I suppose the popular, the, the, not in the way that 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 someone who doesn't know the genre well would interpret the ghost story you know they would think it's ghosts and chains and and um the haunted mansion. yeah the haunt yeah the haunted mansion sort of thing but 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 we who know the ghost story better know that it is something deeper and that the, that it is more complex and that that the these stories do explore um these these emotions that that everyone does have yeah so i mean whether it's whether it's left or 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 steve rasnick tem i think they're they're kind of all doing, you know, they're exploring similar terrain. Well, I think you've done such a good job with the, the variety of, uh, in, in that, within that genre too, because you have Mark Valentine yeah. and John Howard and Helen Grant. Mm -hmm. um, so talk about, like, how do these authors come to you? Do they just say, here's my bunch of stories, please publish them? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a mix between what I like mm -hmm. and what I seek. So I mean I have my own favorites and I'll, I'll definitely go to people, but then there would be others that would that would come to me, and usually when they do write to me with a submission, um, I'm half relieved because that means I don't have to contact them because usually you know I'll have a draft of an email that that I'm about to send to them anyways, saying would you would you consider you know sending me a collection of short stories? And lo and behold, they they come to me and and say you know I don't suppose you're open for submissions, but. Um, Here's a collection. So I mean, it's great because because um, I don't know. It's nice to it's nice that some of the writers that I would like to work with, anyways, consider consider what I you know the the, the books that I publish to be worthy of, of their stories. Um, so they they'd approach me some sometimes, but I mean, it's a little of both. Yeah. Uh, Swan River Press has a real vibe in terms of the looks and the feels of the books. Are mm -hmm. like when you look at a Swan River Press book, you say. It looks short enough. I can read this. Yeah. It's not superimposing. It's beautifully designed. 
and it has kind of a, a similarity of look. Talk about the art design and just making the books themselves. Well, the the books are this. I mean, it was a very early decision, and the the very first collection that I published was by Rosalie Parker. It was called The Old Knowledge. And it's a short collection. It's about thirty-five to 40,000 words, if I recall. Um, and it's, you, can, you can get through it in maybe you know, two or three readings, or you know, two or three sessions. And I find that comfortable. I like shorter collections. And I realized that, um, for example, I love Robert Aikman. I think he's a fantastic writer. And I think pretty much all the stories he wrote are excellent. But when you have that giant two-volume collected works of Robert Aikman, you can just get Aikman out. Um, you know, when you read too many of them, even the best writers can overstay their welcome. And I think it's nicer to have a shorter collection where you can read it and then you're done with it and you can move on to something else and, and you just don't get overwhelmed by something. Uh, so, I mean, I did that deliberately. And I, I also started to notice that, that some of these earlier ghost story collections were quite short. I mean, uh, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary is, is not a long volume at all. Um, and I think even Robert Aikman's collections, when they came out, they're just not that long. I mean, right. it's, it's only like five, six, seven stories, you know, in each one. So I, I wanted to do that as well. The design, um, I immediately went to a good friend of mine, Megan Carley. She does all of the design work for Swan River Books, and I credit her with, with giving giving the books the look that they have, um, the sort of unified look. Um, the reason they look nice on your shelves is because of Megan. <laughs> okay, good. They, <laughs> um, and, then, good. and then I don't want to say to a lesser extent, but, but to a different extent because it's the artwork that's on there. So I'll have, um, and I say to a different extent because it's not the same artist doing all the the covers uh, like Megan is doing the I mean she does the design for everything but I have different artists that will do different books depending on what's necessary for each book um, and for a lot of books I, I work with Jason Zarillo who is um, how to describe Jason he's a professional uh, with the capital nice. P so is <laughs> Megan but but um, Jason is just uh, he's one of the easiest people I've ever worked with in my entire life and when you're kind of trying to get what you want, he's, he's there trying to give you what you want. Um, and he has no pretensions whatsoever. I mean, he's, he's there to do the work and he does beautiful work. Um, and he's just, he, like, he's so easy to work with. I'm, I'm so grateful that, that, that you know, and this goes for the authors, this goes for the designer, Megan, this goes for the, any artist, not just Jason, but, but any artist that I work with. Um, every single one of them deliver this level that, that I don't think I would be capable of on my own. So it's, it's largely uh, all of these people that, that I think make Swan River kind of a good publishing house. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree. <laughs> and one thing I have to admit, you have a pretty fierce schedule of publishing. I mean, You think so? I, do, I, I don't know. I just do what I can when I can. I think it's pretty great. I mean, you know, it's nice. By the time I've finished one, there's another one kind of waiting for me. Good, good. <laughs> I, 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 is that uh, is that deliberate? I no. I like I said. I just I do what I can when I can do it. And being small press, um, I don't feel as if I can exert a huge amount of pressure on people. I can't crack whips at people. Um, mm -hmm. it, we're just not that sort of scale. 
so projects kind of come to fruition when they do. Um, so I could be like I'm working on something now that's nearly finished, mm -hmm. and all I'm waiting on is a, is an afterword before the book is ready to go. Um, and I've been waiting on the afterword for probably about a year now. <laughs> so like when the afterword is written, then that book will be ready and it'll come out. But you know, like, yeah, um, I, I don't have a schedule. And I, I sat down once and I came up with a schedule and it turned out to just be a list of stuff I'd really like to do. And I kept on <laughs> shifting things around and things just get done when they get done. But I mean, I do try to be reasonably productive because I think it's important to, to remain visible. Like you wouldn't want to go silent for too long. Sure. Um, now, um, one of the things you do is the Green Book, which mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. Uh, describe what this is and how often it comes out. And the, the Green Book, yeah, it's, it's, it's called the Green Book. And the subtitle is, let me see if I can get it right, um, Writings on Irish Gothic, Supernatural, and Fantastic Literature. Uh, and that means nothing. <laughs> what it means is, is any sort of excuse to connect something to Ireland uh, is, can be included in, in the Green Book. So um, if, if they're from Northern Ireland, a writer from Northern Ireland, that's fine. If it's something that's set in Ireland, say for example, Ray Bradbury's Green Shadow White Whale, that's fine. Um, it's just stuff that's connected with Ireland somehow. Um, mostly Irish writers, of course. Um, but it sort of grew out of the Bram Stoker Society Journal, which was published from the late 80s until the early 2000s. I think 2001 was the final issue. And as fascinating as Bram Stoker is, um, I don't think, I, I, I've kind of felt as if the journal couldn't it was, I don't want to say running out of material, mm -hmm. but I noticed in the journal that it, that it was publishing pieces about other writers. It was publishing pieces about um, Lefany. It was publishing stuff on Mervyn Wall. It had a great interview in it on Mervyn Wall, in fact. And it just seemed to be itching to burst its, its Bram Stoker Society journal title uh, into something bigger. And... The, more, the longer I've lived here, the more I've realized Ireland's contribution to genre literature from, from Lord Dunsany, Bram Stoker, John Connolly, you know, the crime writer. Oh, sure. He's uh, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, there, there's so much to talk about and there's so much to get excited about. And I wanted a venue to, to explore these ideas. And, I, and I'm learning new stuff every day. Like the very first issue, um, David Longhorn, the editor of Supernatural Tales, he said, do you want me to write an essay on uh, Conor McPherson? I said, who the hell's he? <laughs> um, one of Ireland's most you know, prominent playwright. <laughs> I don't know who he is, but, but you know, David sent me this, this essay on Conor McPherson. And I loved it. And I went to the, to the shop and I started buying a couple of Conor McPherson plays and reading those. So you know, even in publishing the Green Book, I got to discover new stuff that I just didn't know about that I probably should have known about. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's great to, to pass that on um, to other people. Hopefully, if they don't know about it, then they get to know about it. They get to learn about it. And I, I think that's just a, a really fun experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just a venue to, to kind of explore this wider idea of Irish fantastical stuff. 
um, Harry Clark, stained glass, um, anything, because I'm the editor, anything I feel like including in it. <laughs> that um, sounds like a great... Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, tell us what we can expect now from Swan River Press? Um, well, as I said, this is, this is Lefanu's bicentenary year, so it's a, it's a hugely important year, I think, for, for Irish literature, for, for horror literature. Um, and just today arrived the, the anthology, the tribute anthology that Jim Rockhill and I edited called Dreams of Shadow and Smoke, and I'm very excited about it. I've not done a project quite like this before. So it's kind of an experiment, I suppose. And given that I co-edited the book with Jim, um, it's not like just bringing out one of the other books where someone else has written it and I'm just publishing it. I've actually had a hand in its creation mm -hmm. or you know, a closer hand in its creation and assembly. So it's, I'm, I'm more nervous about this one than usual. Uh, the cover turned out perfectly. Um, Jason Zarillo did it, of course, and then Megan designed it. So why wouldn't it turn out perfectly? <laughs> when you have these two people working on projects. Um, so there's that. Uh, another project that I'm, well, the Green Book issue number four is coming out for October. Oh, great. That's gonna be another Lefanu oriented issue and there's quite a bit on Uncle Silas, his, oh. his novel, um, because this year is the 150th anniversary of that novel. So we have this sort of one-two punch going on. Um, after the green book, I have a surprise book that I'm working on that I don't know when I'll announce. Um, I was working on it this afternoon, and it's um, it'll be a notable one. Um, so there's that. And then before the end of the year, I'm extremely keen on republishing Mervyn Wall's two novels, The Unfortunate Fursey and The Return of Fursey. Uh, and these are, these are fantastical satires, they're set in medieval Ireland, uh, concerning a hapless monk um, who gets into all sorts of shenanigans and troubles. He's expelled from the monastery, he accidentally becomes infernal, he runs afoul of the church, he runs afoul of just about everyone that he encounters. Um, they're very dark novels, they're hilarious novels. Um, and they should be better known. Uh, Michael Derda will be writing one of the introductions, and he's a huge fan of, of the novels. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to be working on these, and right now I'm sort of uh, looking for a cover artist, and it's, a, it's going to be a very special project. Um, so I want to get the, the art for these new covers just right. Uh, the family, the, the Wall family, are very easy to work with. They're wonderful. They've, they've given me all sorts of um, old interviews that I can use for promotional. Um, I have photographs of Wall that are that are great. Um, yeah, so I'm excited about this one too, um, and I'm 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 really keen to get them out before Christmas. Uh, but he's another one of these Irish writers that that again I only discovered once I had moved here, and he fits into my idea of the wider. I mean he of the wider Irish fantastical genre, even though you can't really align him with Bram Stoker, you can't really align him with Lord Dunsany. I mean, he's doing his own thing completely, but it's all one big, you know, <laughs> genre family, I suppose. Uh, so I hope other people like these ones too, because I think they're important works, and they're, they're ones that are definitely overlooked um, in this country, 
Um, and if people don't know, we're actually in Ireland at the moment. So yeah, they're over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, these are ones that I'm, I'm, I'm keen on doing. I've been speaking with Brian J. Showers. He's the publisher of Swan River Press and the author of Old Albert and Afterward. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thanks a lot, Rick. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.